So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 1. Children are dismissed, and this is a mature audience-only sermon, so um, Tom, you can go too if you want. Grace, you thought the oldest goat you'd ever see would be in Kentucky. It's not. We are in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is the second of three Sundays of which I've asked your gracious patience to go over this topic that seems to be so controversial in our culture. I think that it's important for us to maybe think back to what we've looked at so far, and that's we have examined in a pre-fall world what God's perfect design looks like, no sin. It is that setup that dictates how things ought to move forward. And so you have to deal with this, okay, there's no sin in the picture. How should relationships function? You have to come to a conclusion about your understanding of that. And and the great thing I like about the Bible is a lot of times it's much more clear than what we want to let on. I'm sad because we... uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't do a lot of social media, but every once in a while I, pull, I will pull up the news feed on Twitter, and it's some of the most ridiculous things I've ever read in my life. And what I found out, or what it seems like where we're going to, is the fact that there's a forced misconception that if I disagree with you, means that I don't love you or I don't respect you as a person. In fact, from what I can understand, the definition of the word tolerance in the 50s was more, I don't agree with your opinion, but I will support that you have the right to say it. That's kind of the basis of free speech, is it not? Now it is. If you don't like what I have to say, you're a hateful, evil person. You need to love me, warts and all. Let's go ahead and say something provocative. Only Jesus loves people, warts and all. But the big thing about warts is you don't want them to touch you. Why is that? You might get them. Right? And so there's this fear mentality that we bring to those conversations. Here's one beautiful thing about every Christian that you see in the Bible. Just because they are in a pagan world doesn't mean they have to act like a pagan. They didn't leave Christ at church. He took them with him. I think that's an important point that we need to remember. Everything that we're dealing with today is an emotional response. How people's rights have been violated. How you've infringed upon my freedoms to express who I am. And I think what we're seeing, what is interesting is, is two things. Number one, because it is an emotional response, there is no objective basis for truth. It's all about what people think and feel. In fact, for the longest time on a lot of our law books, and I thought this is very interesting, adultery was against the law. What if adultery was against the law today? But what happened? Did the fact that is adultery being wrong change? No. What had happened? Well, this is the sin I want to participate in. And so since I want to participate in that sin... And if I can get it with uh, with a whole lot of other people that gives me some clout, and we can create 
a movement. And we can get this changed. And now we've got a different standard of truth. Well, that's the law of the land. You can't hold me responsible for that. It's not illegal anymore. God's word never changed on this subject. God's word never changed. But notice, when you have an emotional base for the reason why you're basing your laws and what you're calling truth, it is volatile at best. And eventually it will explode. And get ready. Because our culture is on the version of explosion. We are to the point, and this is the fringe thing that's coming in now, to where a lot of people who have had this conversion surgery, as far as being transgender, are starting to realize, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Because that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I thought it would make me happy. And then once I got into that situation and paid all the money and, and Visa's my best friend now because of what's going on, I've realized that wasn't the solution because I'm still severely unhappy. In fact, life is more complicated. And so the only thing I know to do is to go back to where I was. Who made those choices? They did, didn't they? And they made the choice based off of how they felt at the time. The world's F train is out of whack, severely. Truth is not fluid. The only solution is that you have to have a standard outside of yourself. You have to have a standard outside of yourself from someone greater than yourself, and thankfully it's the designer of ourselves, who is graciously revealing himself and letting us know how to handle ourselves. Otherwise, the Bible wouldn't preach so much against self-control. Now, for all of our benefit, so that there's no pressure, all the pressure's off, I've already let the nursery and the children's church know we're going to go long today, okay? <laughs> so there's no pressure. None of you need to be, you know, holding up your cell phones, let me know. I know what time it is. It's going to be good. But if I don't get through this material, we're going to have to keep pushing it, and I, I, I don't want to do that. I want to cover this. I, I want us to see what the Bible has to say about these things. So... We've examined a pre-fall existence, but now we have the introduction of sin into the mix. Anybody had a bad problem when sin's gotten into the mix of your life? Okay, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page because then we can all move forward. We've all had bad experiences with sin. I like it. Seems elementary. It's actually extremely complicated. So if you look, verses 26 and 27 of Romans 1, here's particularly what we're dealing with. Remember, the whole thrust of Romans is how do I live a life, whether Christian or unchristian? Okay, and if you you dispute that, great, talk with me about it later. Whether Christian or unchristian, how do I live a life that is not under the wrath of God? Because everyone, Christian or unchristian, has the capability of suppressing the truth, covering it up. And when we suppress the truth, God's passive wrath is against us. The Bible makes no apologies about that. And so what we're seeing here is the first evidences of passive wrath. Because people get into a situation where they want to deny the general revelation they've been given of the existence of God. They don't want to honor Him. They don't want to glorify Him. And so they end up exchanging what God has made available in a relationship with Him through Jesus because a lie is a lot more comfortable and a lot more suitable to the sin that they want to wallow in. 
Now, this addresses every single person, including myself, without exception. We are all guilty in some way. This is what makes the Savior so great. Our sin is so great, and that's why we need so great a Savior. So if this is a situation, and we find ourselves resulting to these sin patterns sometimes, in order to deal with these concepts, you will find that there is a God of our creating, our own creating, that we now bow to. Not the God of the Bible. It's, it's, it's hard to be honest with the God of the Bible. Why? Because he's so honest with us. Exposure to him exposes our inadequacy. And so we like to say things like, well, I don't think that God would work like that. Well, I don't think that's what God's word means. That may be what it says, but that's not what it means. September, hermeneutics class is starting back up. Praise God for that one, right? So there you go. But when we look at verse 26, for this reason, for what reason? Because of this exchange. God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which was unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Here's what this is telling us. Here's what Paul's letting us know. If homosexuality is rampant in a culture, it is because a neglect of thinking or honoring God has taken place an exchanging of him for something more palatable has taken place. And that the land is already filled with idols. So homosexuality is an evidence of God's passive wrath, and it's a real good measuring tool to tell you where you are as a culture before God's hand. And what we see is that at this point, especially in America, he's pulled it back. He is allowing people to fulfill the lusts of their hearts, to find out just where exactly is that going to get us in life. And what we're going to find out is increased dissatisfaction. Why is that? Because we are operating in a way that is completely contrary to the designer's design. Anybody ever got in your car and just drove it backwards? Demo derbies, yeah? But what happened there? Crash, boom, fall apart, right? Injury? Hopefully some explosions. Nobody wants to go to a demo derby where it's not explosions, but then nobody gets hurt. We want that, right? I'm a fire guy. I love it. So that's what happens. But nobody ever got in their car and said, hey, I think I'm going to drive this thing backwards all the way to Walmart. You're not going to make it. Why is that? Wasn't designed to be done that way, was it? It is an unnatural way of handling that vehicle. It's no different with the stewardship of our bodies. Let's turn to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. The Lord has solidified with Abraham what he is going to do, providing a son for him. Nothing is too hard for him. And we are going to step into verse 17 of chapter 18 because I want you to see some things that are going to lead us up to what takes place at Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 17, it says, Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
For I have chosen him, and notice the reason why he's chosen. It's not go to heaven when you die. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Notice that righteousness and justice are listed forward as a standard in this election or this choice here. Election and choosing is never to salvation. It is always to a task, ministry, or purpose to fulfill every time in Scripture. Notice that Abraham's commissioning is to raise a godly family that perpetuates a generation that upholds righteousness and justice. Why is that necessary? Well, the reason is, is because it's actually a dispensational argument. In the dispensation of innocence, you have a pre-fall situation. Adam and Eve are perfect. And so God is able to communicate with them in a perfect manner. But when they decide to do what they want to do instead of what God told them to do, they've ushered sin into the picture, and now they have to deal with them differently. Anybody realize that because you're dealing with a sinner, you've got to talk to them differently? Nathaniel, did you do that? No. What does that tell you? Yes. You're a liar. You're a sinner. And so I've got to deal with you differently now. But if you would have told me the truth, we would have handled this situation much differently. Correct? It's no different with God. It's no different with God. So now with the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, everyone has a conscience that testifies to good and evil. So now you're to govern yourself by this conscience. Do they have a law yet? No, no law yet. That takes place in Exodus 20. And so since they don't have a law, notice that righteousness and justice are understood standards amongst human existence of which our consciences are to testify to and of which we are held to live according to. Anybody ever had your conscience tell you not to do something? And you did it anyway, right? Okay, so we all, can, we all can relate to this perfectly. So notice, righteousness and justice are standards that are to be perpetuated in the family. And not just Abraham's family, every family. But the subject is, is God going to reveal to Abraham what he's getting ready to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? So he says here, verse 20, And Yahweh said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Does everybody see that? I want this to be crystal clear when we walk out of this building. Their sin is exceedingly grave. Notice this is God, Yahweh God, the creator of all things, his divine evaluation of the moral climate of a culture. Does everybody see this? Is that Jesus calling? (laughs) Mitch, make up a... (laughs) Make up a slide. (laughs) Please silence your cell phones. All right, back to this. Notice it's exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry. Now stop. Isn't God all-knowing? Isn't he everywhere present? So what does it mean he's going to go down there? Here's what it means. He is going to heighten the revelation that they are able to receive in order to see if the charges against them will stick if they have more of a righteous presence in their sight. Does Yahweh physically go down amongst those people? Physically, no, he doesn't. Who does he send? To what? To angels. 
Now watch this. They are his representatives, and we're going to see that everybody in the city knew that they were angels. So watch how this happens. I will go down now and see if I've done it. They've done entirely according to this outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. In other words, I am going to personally engage them in some way to where they have greater exposure to righteousness and justice, to truth, and then see how they respond to this greater exposure. Will they be convicted of their wrong, or will they suppress the truth and press forward in unrighteousness? Look over at chapter 19, and notice this is Yahweh putting a test before them. Chapter 19. Now, we know this, right? Lot's hanging out at the gate of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had the choice to choose where he wanted to go. Sodom and Gomorrah seemed like a pretty prosperous place. Never do anything off of convenience or financial gain. The Bible speaks against it all the time. Follow God's will for something. So here he is, sitting in the midst of this city. The city is depraved as all get out. And all of a sudden, two guys come up. And just real quick, I know I don't have it up there, but just look at verse 1 real quick at the end. Notice that Lot bows down with his face to the ground. Anybody ever come to your house and you bow down with your face to the ground? Probably not. Do you think that Lot recognized that they were angels? He probably recognized that they were celestial. They were something completely different. They were people sent from the Most High God. How would he know that? He hung out with Abraham for a long, long time. So his exposure to these things is not anything new, different, novel, anything like that. He would totally understand when this has come out. So notice he bows down. He immediately wants to take them into his house and care for them. Notice that he is responding in a righteous way towards these visitors. Look at verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. What does that tell you? Every single male. In all of Sodom and Gomorrah, with the exception of those, it seems, that were in Lot's house, came to Lot's house for an appointment. That's what this is saying. Notice it says, young and old, didn't matter what the age was. Notice it said, from every quarter, didn't matter if you lived in the slums of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you lived in a nice shiny house up on the hill. When it became nighttime, everyone was out carousing. Now watch what happens here. Verse 5, And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Are they hiding their sin? See, this is the point that it's gotten to. In the 1940s and 1950s, if you were a homosexual, you were very much in the closet. That's why when they call it somebody coming out, they're coming out of the closet. It was a sin that was hidden from public sight for fear of ridicule or what have you. Everybody got that? Okay, but notice in this situation here, it is public knowledge. They're not hiding anything. This is just the way that this culture runs. Is this resonating with you? Okay. So notice what happens. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind them. He said, please, my brothers, do not act well. What's it say? Do not act how? Wickedly. It's a bad thing. It's not good. What you're getting ready to do is not good. Now, everybody pause for a second, and let's put on our Mortimer Schnurd caps, and let's think for a second. Okay? If the subject was just the fact that they just wanted to have intercourse, 
And if every person young and old is there gathered together, why not just do that with one another? Everybody see that? If the fact is an unbridled lust that is taking place and it's got to be satisfied in some way because of the extreme depravity of the culture, then why not use one another in order to gain that fleshly goal? But that's not the situation here. Do you think the men of Sodom and Gomorrah knew that these were angels? I think they did. And I think that what we see is, is because a divine heightened revelation that is sent to them from Yahweh is now taking place, you actually find this carnal lust bubbling over, wanting to take the initiative with these two men who are actually angels. It's not just simply a normal all-day homosexual activity. It is actually bubbled over into a much grosser sin. Now, why in the world do we think that? Number one, the men came requesting the two guys, look, don't act so wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with the man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Now at first we say, Lot's crazy. What is wrong with him? Right? We say that. But here's the thing. We say it's crazy, but does Lot know that they're angels? So notice, they're directly related to the Most High God. So because Lot loves God more than he loves life, if need be, he will protect God's chosen messengers who were sent here, even if he has to forfeit his daughters to do so. That sounds crazy. Stop for a second. Didn't Yahweh ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, with whom he loves unto God? And don't we read that account and there's no complaint to be found amongst Abraham, when that takes place, yes? Notice that. Because there was a God view of things, not an earthly view. Now still, we would sit here in the balance, I don't know if I'd do that, that's pretty crazy. I hope I never get put in a position like that. But remember, Lot is now faced with a mob mentality. And if he can protect God's chosen people, that's what he's trying to do. I still think it's crazy, I'll be honest with you. I still think it's plum crazy. You agree with that? Not totally. But there's something in the scripture that compels me to praise God I'm not Lot. So move on. So notice what it says here. Please, let me bring them out to you. You can do whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men. And as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. He's a sojourner. He's from out of town and he came in to reside here. And already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. Notice, it had gotten to the point where sodomy was going to be used as a punishment tool for not agreeing with their agenda. If you stand in the way of me fulfilling my sexual desire, then I will unleash my sexual desire on you as a punishment. Now we have that today. You may not know it. We may not classify it. It's called rape. That's what that is. In fact, let me go ahead and give you this just to show you guys how uptight I am about these things. Let me give you a definition of sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is anything that is done outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman under the condoning confines of God's instrument of marriage that both people in this couple have not agreed to. That's sexual abuse. That means that if you're dating and you've had your hands on somebody before you're married, you are sexually abusing that person. Well, it doesn't feel like it because it feels real good. Well, of course it does, but what do you think God thinks about it? Are you satisfying lust? Guys, sex is a spiritual experience. 
The physical's just a bonus. The spiritual experience is the chocolate cake. The physical experience is the icing. But we have too long in our culture demeaned this to just a self-gratifying thing. This whole casual dating, friends with benefits, Netflix and chill, whatever the kids are calling it today. They're calling it all kinds of things. You guys, who's ever heard of Netflix and chill? Anybody? Okay. I know you people in high school have, and I know that was like six years ago and I'm way out of the loop. That's fine. My goal isn't trying to be relevant. My goal is trying to be truthful. But anything like that that has taken place is causing something called scar tissue on the soul. It is building up a callousness to God's will. Why? Because I am stewarding my body in a way that God prohibits. And I hate the excuse, but you don't know how in love we are. Yes, I do. It's not very much. Because all you're about is getting yours and not caring for theirs. And here's the thing. If you're a Christian, guys, you're touching your sister in Christ. Let that one sink in for a little while. Think about it. That's why it calls you one flesh. That brother and sister boundary ceases and you become one. That makes it okay. Think through these things, how God would think through them. We have to. So notice now we have a violent riotous gang rape situation that's getting ready to take place and notice they say so they pressed against lot they came near to break down the door you know the rest of this they end up fleeing god completely destroys the city in fact the history channel has an interesting program the search for sodom and gomorrah guess what they didn't find it and you could have told them that if you just would have turned to genesis right don't waste your money on this production it's not there do me a favor, take your Bibles, turn to Exodus, or sorry, Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. And I want to show you just some commentary. Anytime that you can use Scripture to better understand Scripture, that's the goal that you want to go for. And in Ezekiel 16, there's some things that have to be said, verses 49 and 50, that are going to explain a little bit about what was going on in the spiritual climate of Sodom and Gomorrah, what led to this. Because it wasn't just that everybody decided they were going to become homosexuals at that time. That's not what was going on here. It's actually much more than that. Look at verse 49 of Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had, what's the word? Arrogance. What's another word for arrogance? Pride. And what we know this is, is as the pride movement. Somebody pointed out something really interesting. Why is it that the homosexuals get a pride month and yet our veterans get a day? That makes no sense. Our mothers get a day. Our fathers get a day. Something's wrong. And somebody is dictating the course who has no connection to truth. It's completely separated from the pre-fall institution. This is how God made it. This is the ideal. And anything that we do to stray from it is called sin. And we are so scared to death to say that word anymore. It is sin. Notice, it's pride, it's arrogance that fueled this culture into this direction. Notice, they had abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus, they were haughty. The word haughty means they were exalting themselves in every situation. They became the pinnacle of their existence. And it says, and they created abominations, or sorry, committed abominations before me. Let me give you a definition of the word abomination. It's real simple. It means horrible is what it means. They did horrible things. They committed horrible acts 
before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. The cup of judgment had run full. Now, knowing that pride is the fuel of this, let's turn back to the law of God and deal with the inception of the law. Leviticus 18. You didn't come to learn today. You're at the wrong church, guys. Leviticus 18. And let me say this. I apologize for being so serious. This subject grieves me. It grieves me that we've gotten to this point. It grieves me that there are hurting people in the midst of this movement that think that they're correct. It grieves me that nobody bothered to check with God to see where we were as a nation. I'm grieved over those things. It's sad. It's sad. Anybody else depressed by this sermon series? You're good. Yeah, good. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited about justification by faith alone. So, <clears throat> Leviticus 18. I want to point out some interesting things here. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion about how the Christian relates to the law. I've actually printed up 100 handouts out there, uh, just a two-page back and forth that somebody wrote about the Christian's relation to the law. I encourage you to pick up one. If for some reason they're gone, I'll print out more. I'll put them out there next week so you can see it too to help you clear up some things. Is the church under the law? Absolutely not. We've been set free from the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every single person who believes, so that we're, we're not under that situation. But is the law bad? The law is not bad because it is the written perfection of God. So when God is setting up what a God-glorifying society looks like, he does it in truth that completely corresponds and is consistent with this character. Does that make sense to everybody? And so when we read the law of God, we are seeing the reflection of his character. So let's see something really interesting here. Chapter 18 of Leviticus, we're going to read one through six. I'll make a couple of comments, and then we're going to do a little listing here. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, I am Yahweh your Elohim. You shall do what is, sorry, you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt. Notice that's their past dwelling, okay, where they came from, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan. That's going to be their future dwelling, where they are going, the promised land, to take it over, where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not conduct your life, and your culture should not resemble anything like these two places. Why? Because they have one thing in common. They're pagans. They're godless. And you are not to have a godless culture. Now watch what moves on here. Verse 4. You are to perform my judgments and my statutes to live in accord with them. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. Stop. Don't the righteous live by faith? Notice he's showing them how. If you want to truly live and live abundantly, remember the law is not about if you just keep the law, you can get saved. No, the law condemns us of our sin. It points out what it is. But with Israel, they were already in relationship with him. Rules and ordinances and righteous statutes were to teach them how to have intimacy with their God, fellowship with their God, to walk with him in soundness. And that's the same idea here. If you keep these things, you're going to live. Live how? Live abundantly. Live with blessing over you is the idea. It says, if he does them, I am Yahweh. Verse 6, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. What does uncover nakedness mean? It is sexual intercourse. That's what it is. So notice that verse 6 pronounces a prohibition against incestual relationships. Now, let me just give you down the pipe so we see what else happens so that my argument here can be clear. Verse 7 
Notice it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. What makes you think about what was going on with Ham back in Genesis 9 in this situation where he uncovered his father's nakedness. Some people say that was a homosexual encounter. No, I think what it was is he had sexual desirous uh, 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 motives towards his mother actually is what it was. Because uncovering the nakedness of your father is trying to sleep with your mother. That's the idea here. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Just making sure. So, notice, uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. So notice, prohibition against sex with the mother. Verse 8 deals with the stepmother. Verse 9 deals with your sister or your half-sister. Verse 10 deals with your granddaughter. Verse 11 deals with your stepsister. Verse 12 deals with your paternal aunt. Verse 13 deals with your maternal aunt. Notice that verse 14 deals with your daughter in law. Uh, you know what? I didn't write down for verse 15. We can look at that later. Verse 16 is your brother's wife. Notice that 17 is your stepdaughter or your step granddaughter. Notice that verse 18 is your wife's sister. Notice that 19 is whenever the time of menstruation is going on. And verse 20 is you shall not commit adultery, period. Now, two interesting things. Number one, notice that God gives these prohibitions, and he's going to show you the reason why here in just a second. Number two, notice that every relationship that is sinful that is listed out thus far deals with the male and female gender. Does everybody see this? So the argument that is made by people like Matthew Vines, the Christian and uh, was it God and the gay Christian, I think is his book or whatever. And he tries to make these insane arguments to reinterpret a lot of scripture in order to say, God's actually really cool with everybody being homosexual. It's not that big of a deal. God never commanded you to be straight. Everything in the Bible testifies to a male and female relationship being not just the norm, but as the first addresses of God of abuses of the norm. Does everybody see this? Yes. Okay, praise God. So, notice what it says here in verse 21. All of a sudden, it transitions to something extremely interesting. We're going to see why. <clears throat> you shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your Elohim, I am Yahweh. In other words, child sacrifice is forbidden. The offspring that would come out of the natural sexual relationship can still be mishandled and steward poorly if you lose sight of Almighty Creator God and fall down to these false demon gods that have replicated themselves in idols to call you to do foolish things like burn your children for appeasement. Now, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is what? An abomination. It's horrible. You are not to do that. You're to have nothing to do with doing that. Now, look at verse 23. And you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled by it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Bestiality is what this is called, having sex with an animal. Now, pause for just a second. If sacrificing your children to an idol is bad... And if having sex with an animal is bad, and they are on both sides of this one issue sitting here in verse 22, would you agree that verse 22 is also bad? Thank you. 
Because that seems to be an argument that people just can't seem to understand. In fact, everything in here is a prohibition not to do because it spoils a culture. Now watch how it unfolds itself. Verse 24, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. Notice it's considered a defilement. It is less than righteous living. Watch the reason why. He says here, For by all these things, the nations, and if you want to circle that and put down the word pagans, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. In other words, the godless culture that currently inhabits Palestine here is characterized by these things. This is how their culture functions. And the reason why the children of Israel are coming in to overthrow these pagan nations and to inherit their land as a blessing and a gift to them is because their sin has defiled the land and they are being cast out. You didn't know that sin had to do with real estate, did you? But notice that God makes it clear. Verse 25, For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, any of these horrible things, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. You know what that verse tells you right there? You're supposed to have control over those people in your household. You are supposed to govern your house well and do so righteously and according to a just standard. Keep watch over your home. Guys, that's your first ministry. Your first ministry is your home. It's not your work. Man, that's a whole nother sermon, isn't it? We might have to preach that later. Let's move on here. I don't want to make anybody repent too much today. All right. Verse 27. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. Verse 28. 28 picks up the thought in 26, if you notice the parenthesis going on in 27. So that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it spewed out the nations which have been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off. There will be punishment for immorality. And notice that all of it, with the exception of sacrificing your children, is sexual in nature. Does everybody see that? You know what God's telling us? You can mishandle sex in a severe way. Do we not see that today? Notice it resonates perfectly with the culture. So now moving on here. Verse 30. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so that so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am Yahweh your Elohim. Anybody know why God's making such a big deal about this land? What will this land have sitting on it one day? Anybody know? The literal, physical body glorified on the throne of David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself reigning for a thousand years. And so notice, in a defilement of the land is actually a defilement against sacred ground that has already been set aside by God of which to literally establish his kingdom when he comes back after the tribulation. See, that's how serious this issue is. God doesn't want this real estate defiled. It's the place where his son will reign. That's how serious he takes it. So notice the problem we have here. This is what caused the casting out of the land. If you want to write down another verse to go to, but in the interest of time, we won't. Leviticus 20 verse 13 is also a prohibition against the same thing. 
So let's apply an application here. Everybody turn to 2 Peter 2. Anytime that you have in Scripture where you have a passage that speaks to another passage of Scripture, pay careful note. It's going to be the best commentary you're going to find. How do you deal with this utterly depressing situation? How do you deal with this depraved condition? How do you deal with when you open up the newspaper, when you decide to scroll on the internet, when the news comes on, you're just kind of beside yourself in how you deal with it? This is going to seem like this topic has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it very much does, so just go with me on it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. Now notice, that's the subject. We're talking about false prophets and the problem that they will present. And it's going to give us some characteristics, okay? So notice what it says here. It also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. In other words, today, it's going to happen. He says here, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, so things that are not according to sound doctrine, even denying the master who bought them, because Jesus Christ has tasted death for every man, so it's the denial of the atonement of Christ for all people. That brings me great concern when people deny that. But notice it says here, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, unbridled, Lust. You will know a false teacher because the physical craving that they have for sexual intimacy and intercourse will overcome them. In fact, when this word is used in the Greek, as far as in secular writings, it's used for the longing of women to want to constantly be ravished by men. That's the idea. It's not any different than those Harlequin novels that you pick up at the drugstore, right? Anybody do that? See, I almost got you there. <laughs> but anyway, it's like, oh, that, no, it's not me. No, no. It's good. So, notice the be their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth, the doctrine of the Bible, will be maligned. It'll be blasphemed or it will be slandered. And notice they're personally responsible for what they're doing here. Verse three, and if they're and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they will be brought to justice for mishandling God's word. Now, watch what happens here because there are three examples that are put in place and we're going to see something very interesting. Example number one, verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And what's interesting about that word hell, it is actually the word only used this one time in scripture, Tartarus, okay? I'm probably not even saying that correctly. But what it means is it means Not just hell, but a destructive place of damnation that is actually located beneath the lake of fire. Okay? And notice it's talking about that's where angels ended up at who rebelled against God. And this is probably speaking of Genesis 6, the situation with the Nephilim. Now, moving on to verse, or sorry, hell, and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Example number two, verse five, and did not spare the ancient world but preserved, guarded, kept watch over Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Everybody knows this because it's the flood time of Noah, correct? So we've got that down. We're talking Genesis 6, 7, 8, beginning of 9. And then, example number 3. This is interesting. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example. Now notice that. 
He made Sodom and Gomorrah when he judged them an example to other people. An example for what purpose? Look what it says. To those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. If the choice of the world is to participate in this unnatural interaction of homosexuality and lesbianism, bisexuality, transgenderism, whatever it is, then know this for sure. And I cannot apologize for this because this is what the Word of God has said. An example of the destruction that awaits that type of lifestyle has already been clearly painted for you in the pages of Scripture. How often do we feel like Lazarus and the rich man where he's there and he says, let me go back and at least warn my brothers about how terrible this is. And I love the response. They have the scriptures. They've already been told the truth. I don't know if that's intolerant or not, but I can't afford to care. It's a lot easier to attract flies with honey. It is. And I am not lacking in love for anybody that's participating in that lifestyle. I have no reason to be whatsoever there's no reason to hate any person be upset with their sin be disgusted with sin good grief i would hope we are what does that say about what we're allowing in our lives and what we're allowing to come in between our savior and us in our lives if we're okay with certain sin no we're not to be okay with sin but that's not because we're self-righteous or the answer was found in us it's because our knees need to be constantly before the savior that's the difference There's already an example that's been painted. God took the time to make the picture clear. He says it's an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued, I love it, if he rescued righteous Lot, was Lot righteous in his time? Yes, he was. If God took the time to rescue him, and notice what it says about him, the fact that he was oppressed by the sensual conduct same word up there sensuality unbridled lust if he was so disturbed and shaken by all of the immorality that was taking place around him because of rampant homosexuality and so here he is in the midst of this culture not knowing what to do about it being so frustrated and personally grieved because his heart desired righteousness but he's sitting here in a situation that feels helpless can you identify with this notice if that was his case He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. People who had broken the law, what this word means in the Greek, unprincipled, breaking the law to gratify your lusts. Well, yeah, what I'm doing is wrong, and I know the Bible says it, but if we can just legalize it, I've got clout. I've got something to stand on. We just need to get the law involved and pass it through Congress and the House of Representatives. Anybody notice that doesn't work? It's not just me. The government is not our God. Opinion is not our God. Our peers are not our Savior. And my encouragement to you is when you get in situations where you see everything that is going on and you think, good grief, this thing is going out of control. God has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. In all of that situation, if he can still pick out Lot and they drag him out of that city because he didn't want to leave certain people behind, God has not forgotten you. He was oppressed. He was tormented by the culture around him. Look what it says, verse 8. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul 
tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then he transitions back to false teachers. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And that word actually means trials is what it means. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially, especially, mark that word, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt, in its defiled desires. And here's ultimately what the problem is. And despise authority. See, the overzealous pride of a godless person who doesn't want to honor God or thank God boils up to the point of throwing off all restraint or instruction about how to use something, steward something, handle any situation, govern themselves correctly, and we all fall into it. Some of you sped on the way to church here. Why is that? Well, we're running late. We got our reasons. Or the government doesn't know what they're talking about. This should be a 45. You've done it for a reason. That's a minuscule kind of idea as opposed to the, or sorry, in, in conjunction with the idea of mishandling our bodies in certain ways. Our bodies were never meant for us. This is not a self-gratifying vehicle here. It is to be a God-glorifying vehicle. When you are seeking to live godly in this culture, when you are desiring for the truth of God's word, when you're sitting here praying at night saying, God, just please do something here. Freaked out by where things are going. Parents, I resonate with you. If you're raising little kids right now, you're sitting here thinking, if this is now, what's the future? Now, me personally, I'm looking for the rapture, so I'm going to start teaching Nathaniel about that quickly. But (laughs) the Lord can tarry as long as he wants to. It's never out of his control, and here's what he's promised us. As sinful, godless people continue to do what they do and deny his revelation, he will continue to protect and love and shelter his kids. God loves his children. Now that's sermon two. You still have sermon three. You don't want to miss sermon three. Because right now you're going to walk out of here with this perspective of, oh, Jeremy hates gay people. That's not what I said, and I don't. But you have to come to Sermon 3 to see why. Sound good? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word. Let us never fail to call sin, sin, and not be so quick to call someone else's sin, sin, instead of our own sin. The whole world needs you, desperately. Father, we have the good news. Spirit resides in us. Christ is living in us. And the mission field is great. We desperately need to sow the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a culture of fear where you can't say anything without severe repercussions by insanely unreasonable people. But you have not given us a spirit of fear given us a spirit of love, a spirit of a sound mind. Father, when we feel oppressed or persecuted in this culture, and it's coming, help us to remember, reassure our hearts, bring to our minds, you've not forgotten us. You didn't forget Lot. You won't forget us. You will take care of us. And we need to simply trust that. Lean into you call upon you to be the God that you are and that you've always promised to be.
so that we would walk by faith, we would live a righteous, abundant life. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.